The class of 2001 was hailed with a storm of lighting of fury on their entrance and exit for West Point. Graduating 101 days before the tragedy of 9-11, the class of 2001 served as junior military officers during the initial phases of the war on terror and increasing positions of influence over the next 20 years. Bound together for four years in school and together in service to our nation and their communities, these are the stories of those graduates as we look through the grave. On this episode of Through the Gray, we'll be speaking with Lieutenant General Daniel Christman. Dan Christman applied to West Point because of the quality of leaders it had produced and the respect he had for veterans he knew in his local community. Dan arrived to West Point in the summer of 1961 and experienced the sophomoric behavior of some of the upperclassmen and West Point's development through attrition model, but also had access to some of the most influential leaders of his era, Gerald MacArthur, John F. Kennedy, and General Eisenhower. Dan graduated from West Point in the summer of 1965 and would go on to serve in South Korea, Vietnam, Europe, and the Middle East, and gained a deep appreciation for the impact that overseas experiences play in developing leaders. Dan also served in key leader developing positions, from company command in Vietnam, to instructing at West Point, to serving in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, to serving as the commanding general for Fort Leonard Wood and the engineer school commandant and multiple positions in support of the National Security Council and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Dan talks through his experience in becoming the 55th superintendent for West Point, 1996 to 2001, and his vision for adding to the legacy of the academy and its role in de developing leaders of character. Dan closes with comments about his thoughts on 9-11 and the experiences of the class of 2001. This is his story. Through the Gray has a new sponsor, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is a veteran and first responder owned company that specializes in handmade, one of a kind American flags. I served with Andy, spending many long days and nights together in the dust and the heat during two tours in Iraq. Whiskey Rustic Woodworking flags are crafted with pride and dedication, honoring all that the American flag stands for. Every flag is hand-stained, handcrafted, and all stars and insignia are etched for a rustic, one-of-a-kind look. Whether you're looking for a graduation or retirement gift for your favorite military or first responder or something meaningful for family or friends, Whiskey Rustic Woodworking is your answer. Check out Whiskey Rustic Woodworking on Squarespace, Etsy, Facebook, and Instagram to browse current flag designs and sizes. Mention this ad for 10% off your order, and shipping is always free. Make a rustic American flag part of your gift giving this year. Welcome to Through the Gray. We're speaking with Lieutenant General Daniel Christman. How are you doing today, sir? Hey, fine, Joe. Good to hear your voice. It's great speaking to you, sir. Thank you for doing this with us and for the class of 2001. First question, sir, why West Point? Well, in many respects, for me, it was why not? I mean, I, there was no military history in my family, save for, and it was a big save, my dad, who served in World War II as an Army Air Corps captain, and, and the neighbors and our in, instructors, my professors, when I was in, in elementary school and junior high and high school, they, so many were veterans 
whom I looked up to and respected. And there were, you know, there were so many Westmore graduates in the news, like our president of the United States, Dwight Eisenhower. So, you know, all around me were those who had served and whom I admired for their maturity and professionalism. Interestingly, Joe, there were two other things. I mean, one was a television show that CBS, sponsored by Maxwell House Coffee, brought on to the primetime airs at eight o'clock at night on Wednesdays for two years. And it was simply called West Point, and it starred all these great young actors, now, like Larry Hagman and Leonard Demoy and Chuck Connors, who you know made their fame later. But it was a tremendous show. Of course, it didn't talk about Plebeer, about being barracks. But I really got excited about, about the academy. I went there on a visit my junior year, along with a tour. My dad took me on some other colleges in the American Northeast and Northern Ohio. But I just was smitten. You know, when I met the young captains, the admissions officers, and received my PT test from this great captain, his name was Touchstone, Captain Touchstone, who was the son of a legendary Army lacrosse coach, as it turns out. I mean, I just wanted to be like them. So, I mean, that was the quick answer. So this ideal had been set in your mind when you were accepted to West Point and came there, did the reality match the ideal? Well, initially it didn't. I have to tell you, I had a rough first several weeks. Part of it was I had injured my shoulder playing football and I went in with a, with a damaged shoulder and thank goodness it didn't, it didn't affect my PT scores or the medical evaluation, but you know, you don't want to start beast barracks with some physical injury. And it was hard for me. In fact, I'm sitting here right now in some pain. That shoulder is still bothering the daylights out of me 60, 60 years later and facing, you know, possible shoulder replacement surgery. But so that was one part of it, Joe. But the other part was how unprofessional I thought the upper class especially cows, the juniors, were towards the plebes. It was a set of behavioral characteristics that I thought very poorly of. It, it, and it was, I mean, keep in mind, this was a time when the whole West Point model was an attrition model. It wasn't a development model. And when my class arrived on July 5th, 1961, we arrived with about 950 candidates, cadet, cadet candidates, plebes. And, you know, four years later, we graduated under 600, 596 to be exact on June 9th, 1965. It was an attrition model. And a, a lot of that summer was an attempt to quote, you know, weed out, unquote, those that the upper class in their, frankly, I thought immature state thought didn't belong. Not that I felt that I was recipient of that, but there were too many of my classmates that I think would have made great officers that were absolutely hounded out by the unprofessional behavior. So that was that, that, of course that lasted the two months, July and August. Once the academic year began and the shoulder healed, um, and I did well academically at that point, the reality met the model that I had when I was a high school junior and senior, but the first summer did not. And that behavior of the upper class towards the plebes, the sophomoric, ritualistic, demeaning behavior, I thought had no place in how you introduce new cadets to the army or train soldiers. And that, that had a profound effect on Joe when I became superintendent. Yes, sir. There were some major events that happened while you were at West Point. 
the duty honor country speech by General MacArthur in 1961. What impact did that have on you? Yeah, it was 1962, actually. It was in May of 62, at the end of my plebe year. And it was, it was profound. I mean, oh gosh, I mean, that's a line of questioning that I could go into at great depth. But the bottom line is, you know, I had a front row seat for this speech, this blistering hot day after, you know, the first 15 minutes, you know, you have to keep punching yourself not to fall asleep because you knew that you were in the presence of something really, really historic. And, you know, as you know, it's been included in those great speeches of all time. So yeah, as a plebe, it was profoundly moving. I, I love, uh, I love hearing it. As you recall, I memorized a portion of it to give to the plebes on July 4th there at Trophy Point. Those portions of the speech about what duty on our country represents that I thought should inspire young cadets and young officers to follow in those attributes of what, of what the West Point motto really means. So, yeah, I, well, we had a chance to host just as a side story, we had a chance to host the Westmorelands years later, Westy Westmoreland and his wife, Kitsy were the soup and the first lady at the time in the spring of 62. And, but both of them told the story that after the speech was over, thunderous applause takes place. The women, the spouses are in the poop deck of the mess hall, you know, women not allowed at the time, you know, on the floor there when MacArthur was speaking. And so the applause dies down and Mrs. Westmoreland tells the story. She leans over to Mrs. MacArthur, this tiny thing, Jean Faircloth MacArthur and says, oh, Mrs. MacArthur, that's the most unbelievable speech I have ever heard. And little Mrs. MacArthur responds. She says, Mrs. Westmoreland, that is the 18th time I've heard my general give that talk. And as it turns out, of course, you know, he had written this thing out on a legal pad, legal note paper, and then padded around as Mrs. MacArthur described it, padded around their apartment in the Waldorf Astoria time and time again, giving that talk. And as you go to the MacArthur Museum today, you can see the handwritten notes that MacArthur had, uh, had, ske had sketched out and then memorized for the speech itself. Bottom line, Joe, it was a profound profoundly moving experience. Yes, sir. Difficult that the hardest people to impress will always be your children and your spouse. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah. But you know, for me that, that spring, it was unbelievable. I mean, John Kennedy came to give the graduation address for the class of 62 when we were all present, it was given in the field house and then, you know, into my classroom, like at that same time, within the same week or so, William Faulkner comes into my English class. You know, I was the section marcher of this advanced English class and in comes William Faulkner to, to talk to us about his new book called The Reavers and to talk about writing novels. And, you know, I mean, my God, you talk about matching your aspiration, your belief in what West Point is to what it was for you in that spring of 62 between MacArthur and Kennedy and William Faulkner. It was unbelievable. One thing I'd like to add to that, sir, the loss of MacArthur and Kennedy and the ceremonies at West Point to honor and recognize their, their losses, were they equally as profound? Not really. The, I mean, the loss of Kennedy was just a shock. I had just come back from a law class my cow year and saw these upperclassmen. I was a cow at the time and saw these firsties in the hallway. 
in company L2, there's no longer an L2, but in company L2 crying, I had no idea what was going on. And then radio turned on and we heard the news, but all of this obviously was broadcast on television, the funeral itself in Washington, DC. And the funeral of MacArthur as well was not at West Point. We sent a contingent down when he died again, that was also Gosh, what was I? That was in the spring of 64 when he died. So I was still a cow then. That was less impactful for me, Joe, than was the speech and certainly far less impactful than was the loss of, of President Kennedy, whom we had all heard, you know, just the previous two years. And the big issue for us then was the Army-Navy football game. You know, we were supposed to play the game that weekend. And you've heard the story, I know it's been broadcast many times on ESPN, that the driving force that kept the game going was Jackie Kennedy, you know, who's, everyone was prepared to cancel the game and Jacqueline Kennedy said, no, John would have wanted that to continue. And so it was played about a week later and it was all the week itself with it was then, and the game itself was then dedicated to the memory of Kennedy, which you know, we did through an honor ceremony before the game began and then played the game. Graduation from West Point and selection of Branch. What was it like graduating and culminating there, but also choosing the branch and what you wanted to do as a military officer? Well, I was nervous about the choice. Chose the Corps of Engineers because I respected, you know, my tax were engineer officers, those officers that I really enjoyed in the classroom were Corps of Engineer officers. I like the, the, I like the diversity of the assignments between the civil and military sides of the Corps of Engineers. And so, you know, that was my, that was my first choice. And I had the choice of, to go anywhere in the army, to graduate school, to any assignment, any post and said, you know, I, I want to go to Korea. I'd like to get some practical experience. I was going to go to Princeton. I knew that for graduate school fairly quickly. But at that point I was done with school. I just wanted to get out in the army and see what was, what it was like. So spent my second and first lieutenant years, grades and year in, in Korea after ranger school and after airborne school. But I'll tell you, Joe, what the thing for graduation for me, that was the most important was the chance to have a one-on-one -on -one with Dwight Eisenhower. He came back. He, of course, in his class of 15, Omar Bradley and James Van Fleet and, you know, all these military icons, folks I had grown up just, you know, just deeply admiring. They came back for their 50th. Now they're looking really young, by the way, but as a 22 year old, my God, you know, we have to help these doddering folks across the plane. But I was called by the public affairs officer to meet Eisenhower on the front steps of the missile and, you know, like on June seventh or so we were graduating on the ninth and it was profoundly moving. I mean, as you can imagine this five-star, this former president, I mean, that, that of all the things on the, on the graduation, we really stood out for obvious reasons. For a kid that grew up in Ohio, sir, the impact of meeting and seeing these key leaders at West Point and then going overseas to Korea and seeing Asia as a young Lieutenant, how, what was the impact on you? personally, did that? Well, it was huge. It was huge. When I grew up, we didn't travel overseas at all, except to go to Canada a couple of times on vacation, but to see, to be introduced to this new culture in Northeast Asia, and then another new culture in Southeast Asia, a couple of years later, in 1969, 
it was a profoundly moving experience to, un to understand the potential of international friendships and the challenges to our own national security that were present in each of those, in each of those conflicts. So, uh, you know, I really came away from that. Frankly, too, Joe, as did many of my generation, you know, I found when I went, and I'm talking now beyond West Point, when I went to Princeton as a graduate student, it was so interesting to have in my graduate class at the, what was then called the Woodrow Wilson School, so many who had gone into the Peace Corps and that one of the favorite areas of Peace Corps work was Southeast Asia, Thailand, Cambodia, even Vietnam in the early stages there when Peace Corps volunteers were, were working in country. So East Asia, Northeast, Southeast Asia was enormously important for somebody of my age, civilian and military, to be introduced to an important part of the world that obviously to, to this day has tremendous strategic significance and the importance of understanding that culture, their history and their language, that the, all of that emerged from, from my time there, those two hardship tours between Korea and, and Vietnam. Your time in Vietnam, you were a company, an engineer company commander. Talk me through that experience. Yeah. Well, we were supporting the third brigade of the 101st airborne division and the 101st then, and for many of the light divisions now, it's still the case. You've got not an organic engineer company, but you have a company of direct support for your operations. And in this particular case, my company, B Company 326 Engineers, was in the Ashau Valley supporting 3rd Brigade of the, of the 101st. And, you know, I had done well in Ranger School. You know, we, we were as well-trained as one can imagine to try to understand the rigors of combat, but not until you're really fired on take indirect fire, take some direct fire, be shot at. Do you really appreciate the, the importance of the, A, of the training that you receive, but then B, what it means to inspire soldiers to follow you. And this, the story, I'll be very brief on this, but we lost a couple of, of our soldiers in B company and about I would say eight or 10 wounded in a series of operations, not in the Ashau, but in the area that the author, the French author, Bernard Fall called the street without joy, where we were trying to clear mines and booby traps that had been set by the Viet Cong to block the reintroduction of the local populace into their homes. And I became very close to the troops in the Ashau Valley on the DMZ in Northern South Vietnam, but in particular in this operation, set of operations we had on the street without joy. And we had to take over the job of an infantry unit that had said, we ain't doing this. It, I won't describe what unit it was, but it was in the 101st and said, you know, that they had suffered casualties trying to remove mines and booby trap. We got this call. My company got the call saying, Crispin, we want you to assume this mission in this province, Phuong Dien province. And I'd like to think, Joe, that the way that I treated my soldiers with respect, with dignity, you know, it wasn't Kumbaya in South Vietnam in 1969, but when we went on these operations to try to clear the booby traps and, and get the population back into the town, they followed and they followed me. I'd like to think because they trusted me and that leadership model that's central to armies of democracies about 
leaders leading by earning the trust of those that they lead has been central to the precept of how one leads in our army and in the armies of those that we're friends with. And if you want any example of how that's not done, just look at the army, the Russian army in Ukraine, starting on February 24th, 2022. That's what I took away from my time in Vietnam, a difficult time for my company, where these soldiers could have done what the infantry company did that we were taking the place of, i.e. sat down, said, we ain't doing this, but they didn't. And I'd like to think they did that because of the the central element of trust that's earned by exhibiting the core values that West Point's trying to instill. The dual edge of trust. You inspire your soldiers to follow, but sometimes that's a heavy burden to make sure that they follow you in the right direction and in the right way. Yep, sure is. What was the kind of takeaway from your experience in Vietnam going forward? Well, you still need to maintain, obviously, the standards. Joe, don't get me wrong. And by the time I got there, because I had gone to Korea first, because I had two, two and a half years actually at Princeton during the advanced degrees, I was late in my class in going to Vietnam. I, many of the classmates that were with me in Vietnam were there on their second tour. And I say this only because by 1969, the issues of drugs and the racial divide, you know, was really starting to divide many units of the army. I'd like to think it did not divide my company. I didn't see that manifested in the brigade that we were associated with, 3rd Brigade 101st, but it was there. And to lead through that required this delicate combination of exhibiting the values that build trust, but at the same time, ensuring the soldiers understood basic standards of chain of command, following orders, order and discipline. It was, it's a tough, you know, it's a tough balance as you suggest, Joe, but you get over that by the experience of leading. West Point gave you some of that experience as a cadet. I thought I earned part of that when I was a lieutenant company commander in Korea, first platoon leader, and then a company commander to put some of that experience under your belt. But uh, yeah, it's the essence of what West Point is trying to instill and continues to instill. Completion of your tour in Vietnam and uh, coming back to West Point as a captain rising into a field grade officer, what were the things that you kind of reflected on and saw when you went back to West Point and reflected on your experiences? Well, I had, you know, I was married shortly before we went to Vietnam. So the, oh my God, when I say we went to Vietnam, my, my wife actually traveled half the way there. She taught school in Hawaii at Barbers Point Naval Air Station so I could get back on leave and R&R. But to, to spend then the three years teaching at West Point, A, was a chance to really get to know her, have a baby. Our, our oldest daughter is now 50, you know, and she was born when I was a, when I was a captain there. And to enjoy the time with the cadets. I mean, it was just an extraordinary moment. It taught economics and political science and the Department of Social Sciences and to do some work with the, some of the sports teams. But it, it, it was a delight. And then, of course, Fort Leavenworth followed in 1973, 74. And then I got tabbed for this position, Joe, which I just want to make sure 
we spend some time on, given the time here, I got tabbed to work on the National Security Council staff coming out of Leavenworth when I was a senior captain at the waning days of the Nixon administration. And it was a, in, in terms of experiences in the 70s, that was really a profound turning point for me in so many ways. Why was it such a profound experience, sir? Because I was wrestling with whether to get out. I mean, you know, we, the Vietnam War is over by then. I mean, the, the North Vietnamese united the country and we pulled our very last people out, as you know, in 1975. <clears throat> and at that point I was on the, I was on the White House staff. And, you know, the question is, so promotions had really slowed down. And so what's the future of, what's the future of staying in the service? And I think all of us, no, no, I don't care whether it's, you know, my classmate, Rook Shinseki, who became the chief of staff or myself, you know, as former superintendent, we all wrestled with it, with this question about what's the future of the army and what's my role in it. So, you know, I was, I was really wrestling with that when I got tabbed for this assignment and I, it, it was an assignment with the highest a security classification that we had because we were dealing with the Soviet Union then on arms control. That, that was my portfolio. And I got subpoenaed after about nine months on the NSC staff. I got subpoenaed because of the documents that I had in my safe. I didn't take them home, but they were in my safe there on the NSC. Had to testify before Congress and, and worked for Henry Kissinger and then Brent Scowcroft, two real icons, obviously, on foreign and security policy. And while I loved troop leading, while I loved the army and soldiers, I equally got fascinated with national security experience at that highest level. The army, when I got subpoenaed and actually got pilloried in my, I mean, I had, here I was a young major and, and trying to support the Ford administration in this subpoena in Congress. And I didn't think I did all that well, but the experience said, geez, if I'm going to stay in the service, I need a law degree. And the army allowed me to get a law degree in the middle, you know, in the middle of the, of this period in the mid to late seventies. And so, you know, went to law school and got a Juris Doctor, but all of that exposed me to national security decision-making at the very highest level, how it's done, meeting cabinet secretaries, meeting the unders and the deputy assistant secretaries and being treated wonderfully by them, deep respect for the military. And the one thing that helped Joe, I mean, just as a quick aside, my senior raider was Henry Kissinger in 1975. And I had so many people in the personnel directorates for the army, for the Corps of Engineers, for my branch, just say that, you know, that so stood out. It was like a th three sentence or a four sentence senior way to report by Henry Kissinger. And it made such a difference in, in, and I didn't know it at the time, such a difference in how promotion boards look at you, view your future potential contributions to the army when that occurred. And, you know, it, it made a profound difference after my battalion command and brigade command to then be tabbed, you know, to work in these positions in and around the white house and the state department that were to me, fascinating that I don't think would have ever happened had I gotten out of the army. It was because I was in the service. They respected my military viewpoints and these councils of foreign policy. And all of that stemmed from this month period working on the National Security Council staff. It is amazing the opportunities 
to be in the room for history that the uniform and our service affords us. What impact? Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. What impact did your experiences in the Corps of Engineers in Savannah have on your your skill set with infrastructure for planning and navigating construction? Yeah. Well, in particular, construction at West Point, which we. Uh, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, we're transitioning a bit in answering your question about my assignment with the Corps in 06 as a full colonel, but it really taught me the importance of house appropriators. <laughs> the, uh, the civil side of the Corps, as you know, has an enormous budget that comes from Congress to build the waterway infrastructure for the United States. And when I was at Savannah, that was certainly the case. There, there were two major projects. One was a hydroelectric dam and the reservoir, the Richard Russell Dam and Lake. And then that another was the Tennessee Tom Bigby Waterway. I wasn't responsible for the latter. I was for the former. And to get to know what House and Senate authorizers and appropriators do in the labyrinthine process that a bill goes through before dollars flow to the project, all were revealed to me in pretty stark terms by that experience in Savannah. And it was, it really became crucial when we were trying to do barracks revitalization, building a new Arvin gym, getting authorization for a new library at West Point. Those weren't easy in the, you know, late nineties in the time of the Clinton administration, when we were balancing the budget on the, you know, on the backs of the military. So that, you know, that experience in Savannah was really crucial. I'd like to thank for some follow-on successes. And then just to add that out, that broadening that the army gave you the opportunity to experience, to set you up for success later, what did the impact of being the commanding general at Fort Lindenwood and the engineer center and the armor common or the engineer commandant, what impact did that have on you? I'd say two, Joe, one. As I mentioned there earlier, the neat thing about the core engineer is that you have any officer in the core has feet really in two camps. You've got one important foot or boot in the combat side, in the troop side, and another boot, another, in most cases, a civilian shoe, just given the numbers, on the civil work side. I, I loved getting back to Leonard Wood because it's, you know, it's the home of the combat side of the core of the engineer's schoolhouse. And then thanks to Brack, you know, Leonard Wood now has both MP and chemical schools there in the post. That, that was a great deal of fun to help young lieutenants and young captains in the basic and advanced course look to the future, to further ground them in the brands, further ground them in the army. I mean, it was sort of ironic, the engineer school commandant responsible for the basic course and the advanced course. And I never went to either one. We, I got constructive credit for the advanced course after Vietnam. And we did our basic course second semester, first year at West Point because of the spin up to Vietnam. There were too many demands on young lieutenants to get to combat. So we did our basic course at, at West Point first year. But that to me, it was enjoyable. I like to think that I was able to contribute as 
somewhat to the growth of the branch. But the other thing too, Joe, the second thing it did was to introduce me to the responsibility of commanding a large military installation. And there are unique demands in that regard, the civilian workforce, the importance of infrastructure, modernization, and, and town relationships with the post. One of the most delicate relationships of all is the Highland Falls West Point relationship that has probably been unchanged since Edgar Allan Poe was a cadet. I mean, it's just, it is a very fraught relationship. The in this case, the town gown, the West Point Highland Falls. And in the case of Fort Leonard Wood, you know, we had a, it was community there, it was Waynesville, St. Robert, very nice folks. But to make sure that the politics of that relationship are on sound footing was a learning experience. I had never commanded a large garrison before. I was a battalion commander in the garrison at, in West Germany at Billflecken, but I never was responsible for the entire garrison itself. And those two years at Leonard Wood taught me an awful lot about relationships with the town that carried over, I'd like to think, in the relationship with Highland Falls at, at West Point. Before we get to your experience as a superintendent to West Point, sir, 93 to 94, your experience with the military committee and the assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for the Middle East. What was the impact that had on you? Well, I mentioned at the, I mentioned at the outset what overseas assignments in East Asia, North and South of East Asia meant in terms of my appreciation for understanding cultural, linguistic, religious differences. And that was particularly the case in the time as the assistant to the chairman that is the military advisor to the secretary of state, because the, what they put me in, what I was honored to be part of was the Middle East peace team. When I was a three-star, I got invited to join a group of seasoned diplomats, ultimately headed by the secretary of state, who was Warren Christopher at the time, but the day-to-day -day operations were, were headed by this incredible public servant named Dennis Ross, who initially was trained as a Sovietologist, but then became the nation's most respected Middle East specialist. And he asked me to join this Middle East peace team to help with the negotiations between Israel and Syria. And this was, keep in mind, this was after Desert Storm, when there was an opportunity to advance the cause of peace beyond the two countries that had signed peace agreements with Israel, and that's Egypt and Jordan. I, I, my first encounter as the assistant to the chairman was to go to Aqaba and be part of the peace signing ceremonies between Israel and Jordan, the two militaries, the children of both countries. I mean, it was really very moving to see the Middle East in this unique moment of, of historic opportunity, bring countries together to recognize mutually Arab and, and Israeli, Jew and Muslim. I mean, that was really moving, that start. And then that was the first chapter of my involvement there with the peace team. The substantive point was to meet with the Syrians, which wasn't a lot of fun, and the Israelis that were so incredibly professional 
to try to negotiate a return to the Golan Heights. You know, the, the idea was still, I mean, 94, 95, early 96 was land for peace. That Syria would recognize Israel with the return of the Golan Heights and, and Palestinians would get a state largely, you know, in the West Bank and Gaza, and that would lead to recognition of Israel by the Palestinians. My track was with the Syrians. And so we met multiple times, Joe, in these secret locations in and around Washington, DC. Happened, the secret location happened to be one Fort McNair and two Y plantation. And the progress was so incredible. It was my role to, to help the Syrian military and the Israeli military chiefs of staff. Each one of them had their their senior leaders present in these secret meetings. And the progress was so great that after one of them, we were phoned by President Clinton and told to report to the Oval Office and give an update on how it was going. I mean, th those were heady moments in the spring and early summer of, of 1995, a year before I became superintendent. So that, that really embedded, if there was any question after my time in Asia or my time in the Balkans with the secretary in the early phases of my time as the assistant to the chairman. If there was any time when understanding cultures and being able to act and behave and advise and counsel as a senior officer, the time as the assistant to the chairman dealing with the Middle East, dealing with the Syrians and the Israelis, and also with the Russians. I mean, I also had a portfolio to help renegotiate the conventional forces in Europe, the CFE, arms control talks, because the Warsaw Pact had disappeared. And there had, you know, there had been an arms control deal under Bush 41. Now there's no Warsaw Pact. How do you deal with the tanks and armored combat vehicles that the CFE deal from the previous administration had, had been negotiated? So, you know, lots of trips to Moscow in those early days post the Soviet Union just reinforced this whole point that Joe about cultural awareness and the importance of young officers appreciating early on how to deal with different cultures and languages and religions while protecting U.S. national interests. One of the questions, and I think we'll get into it with the academy as well, is change and the idea of whether it's a country, whether it's a mindset, whether it is a culture, how do you have an influence to make lasting change beyond the max effective rank of a, or max effective range of a handshake and your deliberate leadership presence? Yeah, I'm a firm believer in the role that Aldi's play in the success of diplomacy or the failure of diplomacy. I mean, it's not the, it's not the end all, but it's an important element in, in trying to achieve change. When you're in a pre-commissioning source like West Point, you need to make sure you're not preaching for leadership at the four-star level, but you can, what you can make the cadets and junior officers understand is first how to be comfortable in an environment of change. And the time when you were there, Joe, and the classes immediately before you were really an almost perfect laboratory experiment, laboratory environment 
to make that point because what had been the defining threat for all of my career up to that point and for our national security apparatus since the end of World War II had disappeared. The Soviet Union was gone. The People's Republic had this tiny professional military that was bent more on still feeding the population and providing internal security than they did as a threat to our country. So what is the purpose of, the, of a military academy and of a standing army in an environment of fundamental change to our national security vision? And so, I mean, honestly, it's hard to believe this today, but the arguments at the time in the early period of the dissolution of the Soviet Union were, why do we still need a military academy? And the sad part is that there were authors there who were Westmore graduates that were making this argument. And the most notorious, I'll just be candid here with you, was an author named Ben Shemmer, who was the editor of Armed Forces Journal. He's since passed on. But in this environment where there's no Soviet Union, the People's Republic is an infinitesimal threat, why do you need to spend all this money at the federal level, particularly when we have these enormous budget deficits that we need to correct, let's start balancing the budget on the backs of the Defense Department. So that was the environment that I faced when I arrived at West Point. I don't want to get into the fiscal side. Your point on change, though, was exemplified by this particular challenge and what helped us in trying to instill how you operate as a young officer in this uncertain environment was the Balkans, was the former Yugoslavia, with all of the, of the machinations between Orthodox and Christian and Muslim communities in what was the, the former Yugoslavia. The, that provided the international example of ensuring cadets understood both academically and militarily how to operate in this, you know, what was called BUCA, the B-U-C-A, environment of you know, enormous volatility and uncertainty, chaos, and ambiguity. I think that's a great acronym for whole change question. When you were selected to become the superintendent and walked in the door, within the context of the environment you brought up, the peace dividend and a reduction in spending on the military, reduction in the size of the military, what areas did you look left and right and assess these yes. are the areas where I think I can have an impact and where I need to focus. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is when I recall this so distinctly, my wife and I drove up for our first day at West Point in this rainy late June, 1996 afternoon. And uh, the first thing we encountered were dozens and dozens of protesters outside the gate led by a you know, I was talking about the importance of understanding town and gown relationships headed by a woman who was contending to be the mayor. And she was all upset about a particular DOD policy on the support for local schools. I didn't have anything to do with this, but you know, we drive our car through these dozens of people waving placards and gesturing in a not terribly friendly way. Welcome to West Point. So while I had in my own mind and based on some you know, tremendously helpful briefings by my predecessor, General Howard Graves. I had sort of in mind what I wanted to take a close look at, but what I didn't 
contend with, what I didn't appreciate was this issue of how you deal with the community. Separate story. You know, I just, it just took some time to tamp that down. I just went in and, and met with the protesters a couple of weeks later in a, in the library there in, in Highland Falls and tried to tamp all this down. But it was an important part, Joe, of what being a superintendent includes. And that's, you know, m making sure you got a relationship outside the gate that that's, that's pleasant. And keep in mind in, in 1996, the post was open. We wanted folks to come in and, you know, see the place. And there was no, there was just the most modest of security there at the front gate at West Point in 1996. But the, in terms of the, the, your sort of left and right azimuth, Joe, when you're, you know, walk into the door of the office or not the front gate was the funding, just as you suggest, this was a, a, an incredibly burdensome time. My predecessor had about a third of his operating budget cut by the secretary of the army. And, you know, he was distraught in his last couple of months, department of army tells him, general Graves, Hey, you know, your, your budget's going to be this amount, 30% less than you thought it was going to be. And then in the, then you see the condition of the barracks, the condition of, of Arbon gym, the condition of a lot of the facilities at West Point, and you just shake your head about how are we going to, how are we going to do this? So, you know, that was, I'd say that was sort of priority. Number one is to get back enough money so we could turn the lights on and, and heat the barracks and the academic classrooms. And, but the other two, Joe, the other point that I was, I really wanted to make sure I understood and that there wasn't a problem with was honor. If there's, you know, if there's one thing that distinguishes a service academy from our peers. It's how we operate in an environment of, of honor and deep respect. And so the, those two were sort of priority number ones for me to start down the path and make sure we we're, you know, we were headed in the right direction. What did you do in those two areas uh, to initiate movement? Yeah. Well, in the case of the, of the budget, uh, I put together a reclama. And of the one third, these are just rounding the numbers now, Joe, but I would say roughly of the one third that was taken away by the secretary of the army, I was able to claw back probably a little more than half of that in, in terms of, and this is the operating budget right now. It's not the military construction army, the MCA budget that builds big new things. So I was able to get, I was able to get some of that back. And then I, you know, I was brought up the army staff. One, this one infamous encounter was with the assistant secretary of the army for manpower and reserve affairs. And her name was Sarah Lister. She was eventually fired shortly after the story I'm going to tell you, but she came up, I took her through the barracks, showed, you know, her the top floor of Bradley Long and where the waste baskets were being used to collect the water that was dripping through the ceilings because the roofs all needed to be replaced. Had her for supper at quarters 100 and said, you know, Ms. Lister, I just hope you've been able to have pictures and everything else. Hope you've been able to understand the condition of the infrastructure here at the academy. I said, I think the cadets are probably living in barracks that are some of the worst in the army. And her response was, well, General Crispin, that's not altogether bad. So I knew I had some tough roads ahead here to get a barracks rehab program started. Turns out Mrs. Lister, the assistant secretary made a snippy remark about the Marine Corps calling them 
quote, extremists, quote, who wore these, quote, checkerboard uniforms, unquote. And Senator McCain, of course, got wind of that, as did the military supporters in the House, and she was gone within hours after, uh, after saying that. But it just typified, Joe, the problems that we had in trying to get money, not just to turn the lights on, but to do major uh, infrastructure construction that was so badly needed. A new library, you know, be a new physical development center, most, most importantly. So we're ultimately able with a lot of work and thank God we had, I had a classmate who was the chief of staff of the army, who was able to help push the funds for the Arvin physical development center altogether, you know, a little under a hundred million, which by the way, pales in comparison to Davis barracks and to the new cyber engineering center that's underway right now. Those are much more expensive. But in 1997, 98, when we were arguing these, that was a major, that was a major step forward. And in the bigger picture, you know, folks will applaud and appropriately President Clinton for having two balanced budgets, two budgets in the late nineties that were actually in surplus. And people forget that one of the major reasons for that was that with no Soviet Union, the active duty army goes from 900,000 plus to 480,000. And the installations are starved for resources and West Point was one. So A, work with the army, work with Congress to get what you need. But the other thing that we started was private fundraising. We were facing a bicentennial in 2002. I worked with the AOG and we helped together craft a capital campaign to give us some assets that we could never get from Uncle Sam. You know, a new Shea Stadium, a new press box, a new tennis center, a new gymnastics center. Well, Uncle Sam wasn't going to do that in the late 1990s, but the alumni did. And so we raised 220 million or so to celebrate our 200th And it was a huge success for the cadets and for the academy to give the cadets what they needed. The mar we called it the margin of excellence over and above the basic requirements to graduate get a bachelor of science degree and get a commission. The role of the commandant and the dean during the time in implementing other changes on your behalf, sir. Well, they were huge. In the case of the dean, we recognized that we needed to broaden the academic program to recognize the environment that I was discussing earlier into which we were going to commission officers. And it's a real delicate balance there, Joe, because the army still insists, DOD still insists that West Point give a bachelor of science degree and to be accredited. There are just so many courses you can take away from an engineering track to give you the kind of introduction to cultures and religions and language that are so important for the environment that I was describing, but we were able on the margins to cobble together enough to set this satisfy us, the leader team at West Point, that we are doing as much as we can within the constraints of the bachelor of science degree program to present the cadets, what they needed to operate successfully in the environment we were just, we were discussing. I think in many respects, Joe, the more profound, even than that was what general Abizade helped me do. And so I, you know, I go back to my, you know, my time there as a plebe at West Point in 1961, when I was, you know, frankly, just appalled at the behavior, especially of the juniors of the cows who were 
at cadet basic training at new cadet barracks. And although I didn't go into detail, you know, they had these experiences of having, you know, a milkshake poured over my head by a, you know, squad leader of a sister, the new cadet company of having mashed potatoes thrown at me by, by an upper class cadet in the mess hall who didn't like the way I was keeping my eyes to the front. And so you walk out of the mess hall with mashed potatoes all over your dress gray with it. Boy, that was a, that was a professional experience. So Abizaid very much helped me, Joe, in this effort to try to professionalize the summer training in particular and professionalize the treatment of subordinates. And I worked this earlier before Abizade's arrival. General Abizade was just terrific and came up with this phrase to say, we want to make these barracks tough and demanding, tough physically, tough emotionally, tough psychologically, tough mentally, but tough and demanding doesn't equal demeaning. And I thought that was a perfect way to phrase this effort to try to move upper-class cadets away from sophomoric, ritualistic brother behavior. And uh, I'd like to think of, you know, that we made a dent there. The reports that, that I continue to get back from the plebes and the upper class that I see from time to time, I used to go up and teach there for six, seven years long after I retired, indicate that the environment is on a, a more professional path than it was in the summer of 1961. Well, two parts to that, sir. Um, and I, I hinted at it, your experiences of having General MacArthur there and key leaders coming in. What impact did you see or what role did you see not only to be the creator and the cheerleader of the vision, but also cheerleader of replacing these less professional rites of passage with more professional and more useful rites of passage for cadets. Right, Joe, I'm sorry that what role did you say, do leaders play in this senior leaders? Was that the, what role do you, did you see yourself playing? And so like, well, my experience oh, as the cadet. Yeah. When I saw the superintendent, which happened to be you, either at the football games or at the beat Navy bonfire or setting up the, setting the conditions for leaders to come like General Schwarzkopf, who came to my yearly winter weekend, or what role did you set to cheer, cheerlead and then also create these moments of reflection where cadets don't have to look back on these hazing moments or these demeaning moments as touchstones in their careers, but as professional moments. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's a great, it's a great question, Joe. I don't want to be, I don't want to be misinterpreted here. I thought when I graduated from West Point in, in 1965, there was a leader team there that was, uh, that was absolutely terrific. The superintendent was an engineer officer, a combat engineer officer named Jim Lampert. Mike Davison had just left as the commandant, became a four-star commander in Europe. And General, who was the father of one of my classmates, was the dean. And they personified what I thought a senior officer should be. I mean, they were quiet, confident, respectful. They were comfortable when things went the wrong way. And there was a, 
I mean, we have, as you probably heard the rumors, when I was a cow before the Penn State game, there was a riot in the mess hall. I mean, we had cadets, you know, stacking tables and stacking chairs and swinging from chandeliers. And I mean, it, it was a hell of a scene. The commandant, Mike Davison, you know, he could easily have gone absolutely apoplectic, but his calm way in bringing this whole thing back to order in a corps of cadets that fall, the fall of 1963, that was completely out of order, all of us so admired. And so those of us that went on to senior ranks in the military, in my class, General Pickler and of course, General Shinseki, General Janiga, you know, we all looked, we, we would get together often and just talk about uh, shaping experiences. And a lot of that was just the senior officers that we observed at West Point, how they behaved towards the cadets and towards the institution, towards the alumni. And it was, you know, it was really, in, in my view, that spring of 65 was model behavior. So I, I had a desire to make sure that I represented the academy professionally. And, you know, I have to confess, with all of the energy that you get with a, you know, 18 to what, 23 year old population, it's hard just not to get swept away in that love of being with young people. But in this particular case, you know, it's not a characteristic that I necessarily observed from either General Westmoreland or General Lambert, you know, doing a chest bump with a man or something, but you know, you, you get, you just get carried away in the enthusiasm of being with young people. And, and I think, you know, part of it is part of it, Joe, is that's what leaders can do. Not that they must do, because if it's not part of your personality, that's, you know, that's, it's evident that it's not. Each leader has his or her own way to inspire and connect and build trust. But I just found it almost immediately, my very first year of the class of 97 had a, had an A-man. I don't know why I did this. His name was Mike Benura. His name was Mike Benura. And we had a, our first rally and he comes, you know, stripped down in his in muscle shirt and his, in his bandana and his mask. And I just got up from my chair and gave him a, an enormous chest bump in the club, in the officer's club where we had the, the rally. And that just led, you know, every beginning of every fourth quarter, you know, we'd step back 20 yards, take a run, fly in the air, you know, and do this flying chest bump with, with the two of us. And it just, I just found that to me exhilarating. And I'd like to think that even though it was done spontaneously, the very first time it helped him, you know, it helped exemplify to the cadets what a general officer can actually do, you know, not to stay behind the desk or 50 miles behind the line of contact when you're in battle. Yeah. And you know, the other thing too, is that I very much wanted to try to bring the Corps of Cadets close to the, to the core squad athletes, make sure that, you know, the teams, whatever team it was, football, basketball, hockey, what lacrosse, you know, those are your classmates there. I just was interestingly, Joe, before you got on the phone, I just was watching the replay of the army Navy game this year. One of the strangest army Navy games I'd ever seen in 70 years watching it, but you know, they had the uniform of the first armored division in North Africa in 42, 43, but in 
on, on each uniform there was the, uh, the motto of a cadet company with a number that was the cadet regiment. And I'd like to think that a lot of the enthusiasm that, that I saw from the cadets was that this, the current soup, the current first captain, the current cadet leadership, I was really trying to bring the core together with the core squad teams that, you know, that represented the core on the field of friendly strife. And so part of what I was trying to do was to emphasize that. The summer of 2001, the graduation of 2001, and then your retirement, walking away from being the superintendent, what were the highlights of your time? And what was the stuff left to be completed that you wish you no. could have gotten a little further down the court? Well, I've, first of all, I, I, I had been selected for membership in a board of directors, a New York state based company that was having their first board of directors meeting in New York city on September 11th, 2001. And uh, the, the meeting site was in lower Manhattan. And, uh, and so you know, I was going down to the, I was going down to the board meeting on the subway with a fellow board member and we got off the subway near the site and I looked up and there was, you know, this enormous trail of black smoke that was, that was wafting over the subway stop. And I turned to the board member and I said, boy, New York city, someone's going to get their ass in the ring for violating air pollution regulations. Cause I could, I didn't see the, I didn't see the towers then. And we walked a you know, block or so. And all of a sudden, you know, the Vista opened up and I said, oh my God. So, you know, I was there when the towers came down and stayed that night in the city. It was just a profoundly moving experience as I've heard, you know, from so many talking to your classmates too. So many of you have had these experiences that your previous interviewees have discussed, but I knew it was a turning point here in cadet relationships with the army in cadet training and on the education and military side. And, and so I would, you know, I'd get back every so often to, to the academy to talk to the cadets in the department of social sciences, to try to help them think through this environment that they were in. And if there is a, you know, if there is a, a saving grace in all of this, I'd like to think Joe, that's some of the work that we were trying to do in this VUCA, this volatile, uncertain environment, creating a training in, a, in an academic environment where cadets felt comfortable there, paid some dividends in, you know, first the, the war in Afghanistan, and then ultimately for, you know, for years thereafter in both Iraq and Afghanistan, because this was, we thought, I thought the time in Vietnam was complex. What you all faced in the environments that you operated in those two countries, you know, just put the environment that we were trying to reconcile in, in South Vietnam into second order. It was just much more complicated the time that you all spent there. And so the whole transition in military training and education is a journey. And I'd like to think we started that when you were cadets. But then it was significantly, of course, deepened by successive leader teams at West Point, deans, comms, and, and superintendents. I tell you, the other interesting thing, though, on the more pleasant side, uh, post 9-11, the one thing that I started and my successor, General Lennox, completed, we were, of course, about to celebrate the bicentennial. We did that the year after. Of course, you graduated 
And before I left as superintendent, I went to France to talk to the cadets at Saint-Cyr. And you probably heard this same story, Joe, but I'm not sure many of your classmates have. I invited the Saint-Cyr, a contingent of Saint-Cyr cadets to come to West Point in the late spring of 2002 to march in our graduation parade, you know, to symbolize this friendship. And they immediately accepted. And before I left, we got this note back that they wanted a contingent of West Point cadets to march in their Bastille Day parade on July 14th, 2002. And so I said, I'm absolutely right. But then my successor handled this problem. Who leads the parade on the Champs-Élysées on July 14th, 2002? Did the French cadets or did the West Point cadets? And so help me God, this is a true story. The French defense minister, her name, was Michelle Elliott Marie. And she wrote back to the Defense Department, went back to West Point ultimately, and said, well, Napoleon Bonaparte established Saint-Cyr in June. Thomas Jefferson established West Point in March, 1802. West Point is senior, they will lead the parade. And so, I mean, all of this, Joe, I mean, it's connected to 9-11 because this was before Iraq. This is where Europe was, you know, totally at our side in terms of operating against the Taliban in Afghanistan. And I gave some talks on this just over the last several months. And I had the public affairs officers send me the pictures of the West Point cadets leading the Bastille Day Parade on July 14th, 2002. And it's extremely moving. And I love that story. It's a hard story to beat. <laughs> Maintaining the, the prestige, the history, the honor of the institution but also updating it after 9-11 and the experiences of the last 20 years, what performances of the core cadets, those seven to 8,000 cadets who had the opportunity to be led by you, what is your feelings about how we've performed and how we've done in the last 20 years? Oh, Joe, you know, the, the, the uh, I'm glad my wife is not here. She's just came back from her workout because I think she would have the same emotion in her voice that I will have here. And that's probably the best reflection of that. The best answer to that is your class, when you invited Susan and me to be honorary members and host us at West Point in September, 2021. And the reason I say this is that, as you know, the, this uh, really almost tragic withdrawal from Afghanistan had just taken place. And we were surrounded at the hotel Thayer by your classmates who told us dozens and dozens of their stories about service to include some who had just come back from Afghanistan. I think that was the day West Point was honoring the 10th Mountain Division, if I'm not mistaken. That was the patch worn on the football uniform. And there, there were some senior leaders to include, I think some of your classmates there at the 10th Mountain, who told Susan and me the stories about service. And not just service in uniform, but service to country in so many ways in the defense department as civilians, in academe, with nonprofits, with the private sector, and just to listen to the stories that the class of 2001 told to the two of us, Joe, was just so inspiring. To internalize 
you know, in, in our own minds, these tremendous stories about what happens after you finish West Point, you know, that your motto there, I mean, till duty is done. I mean, what more, uh, perfect reflection representation of that motto than the still performing acts of your class every day of the year that are wonderful reflection of both the motto of your class and of the whole ethos of the military academy. I mean, that's, it's just a, it's just a wonderful way to, to ponder the answer to that question through the prism of the class of 2001. Yes, sir. And that's one of the reasons that I think we've had such participate these interviews to share those stories is to help bring to light, not only the service that we've done on the battlefields, but the services we've done back here in the United States through government and through our communities. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I'll just tell you a quick side story, if I may. Our youngest, our surprise baby, who, who came up on the scene when I was a battalion commander. I mean, so she is now 43 and has two little girls on the Upper East Side in, in New York City. So we were there for Thanksgiving, took the two girls out to a gym or to a playground right near their apartment. And I see this, I see this tall, y younger man with a little boy at the other end of the playground. And he's wearing a black night hat. He's wearing a black hat with the logo of the, of the school. And so I go up to him and I said, hey, gosh, did you go to West Point? And he said, yes, sir. You are my superintendent. I said, oh my God. So I'm Dan Christman. And he said, well, my name's, my name's Pat Ryan. And I said, so Pat, what are you doing now? And he said, sir, I'm a congressman. I represent the 18th district of New York, which is the district that represents West Point. And I just, I mean, I almost fell on my knees. I was just so happy. It turns out two of his classmates are also members of Congress, one from Texas and one from, from Michigan. And just, you know, Joe, I couldn't have cared less what party he was from. I didn't even ask, but just listening to him and why he decided to run for Congress and what he's doing there now and what got him there and what, you know, what path from graduation class of 2004, I hope you treated him well, to the Congress was so touching is so endearing and, you know, just. I went back to, to talk to Susan, who was, you know, with our daughter there in the, at the apartment by the park. And uh, I just was, I was 10 feet off the ground to relate the story to her and to say, this is, you know, this is this next generation of leaders of character that's served the common defense. Yes, sir. It's, I think sometimes we look at the things we've built, the infrastructure we built as the legacy we leave behind, but really it's the people. It doesn't matter if the buildings fall down. It doesn't matter if the buildings get blown up. It's the lasting waves of people behind us that remember us and remember our teachings that matters the most. Yeah. Yeah. It's well said. Exactly right. Sir, just to wrap this up, any closing comments for the class? Well, the closing comment would be this heartfelt and deepest thanks, as I mentioned there at the in the previous question to what you did for, for Susan and me meant a lot to us, your reflection of, on, on duty, your experiences and carrying out your class motto just means so much to the, to the two of us. And uh, what I always loved about the time there at West Point, and it still does just talking to you, Joe, 
is, you know, whenever I'd, I'd get a little flagging in energy, you know, the sugar level warning light, you know, came on hence your, your biological dashboard there, you needed a boost of energy. I'd, I'd head over to the barracks, you know, and just walk through and talk to the cadets and, uh, and see what's going on. And so that, you know, that gave me the, the energy to last a couple more hours into the night. And it's the same in talking to you and reflecting on your class. It just, it fills me with enormous emotion, the ener an energy spike, and just a wonderful set of thoughts about what your class represents and what you continue to do as servants of this great country. Thank you very much, sir. And thank you for the impact you've had on all of us. Well, you're most welcome. And again, it's a real honor to do this. And thanks so much for reaching out, Joe. These are, I mean, these are wonderful chances to stitch the class together. And I just hope I've been able to contribute in some way to that larger effort. More than you know, sir. Thank you very much. Go Army. Thanks. Go Army. Be Navy. Be Navy. Through the Gray has its first sponsor, Urban Industrial Northwest. Urban Industrial Northwest is owned and operated by my childhood friend, Greg Hostetter. Greg and I grew up playing in the woods and hit each other with sticks. I joined the military and Greg joined the trades. We both love the outdoors and the Pacific Northwest. Please visit his site and see the amazing work he and his team are creating. Urban Industrial Northwest is a furniture and fabrication company specializing in handcrafted products using heritage lumber deconstructed by architectural salvage companies from structures dating back to the late 1800s to early 1900s. Everything from their powder-coated hardware to their top-selling reclaimed wood desktops are carefully constructed by their team in shop to create one-of-a-kind statement pieces for your home and office needs. Check them out on their Etsy store, Facebook, and Instagram, or give them a call at 360 703 6936. And mention this ad for a 20% military discount on your order. And to top it off, shipping is free straight to your door nationwide. Urban Industrial Northwest, giving wood a third life from tree to structure to an awesome piece of furniture. Thank you for listening to Through the Gray. If you like this episode, please share with your friends and follow the podcast. We want these stories to be shared with as many people as possible.